Good morning. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. I want to greet those of you who are here and those of you joining us by video in Traditions, the Gallery, Upper House, Fitchburg, and those listening, watching online, and those listening to our podcast. Uh, to those in the Chinese congregation of our church, and to everyone, welcome to Blackhawk Church. We're very glad you are here. This is the fourth sermon in a series we call The Unexpected Kingdom, and in this series, we are reading the Gospel of Mark. Uh, week one, we did verse one. Uh, we found out that verse one is actually the title of this book, and the title tells us that the Gospel of Mark is not a standalone story, but it is a, a continuing chapter in this larger story of God on his mission to reestablish his reign on earth, and he's going to do it by building the kingdom of God through a Jewish king named Jesus. Uh, week two uh, was about the main character. Pastor Matt told us that this Jesus guy, he's not just a human king. He's actually the son of God, the creator God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity. Last week, we finally got to a point where Jesus was doing something. Uh, so Pastor Chris got us started with verses 14 and verses 15 of chapter 1. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the euangelion, the gospel, the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the euangelion, the gospel, the good news. So two key phrases there, right? The euangelion, the, the good news, and the kingdom of God. And the passage says the gospel, the good news, it's about the coming of the kingdom of God. God has finally decided to act. He's now going to rescue his people from exile and oppression and establish his reign on earth. And our passage today that runs from verses 21 through 45 is really a continuation of those two past two verses. Um, it's, it's this, this passage teaches us something important about Jesus and his kingdom. However, the story gets kind of weird for us 21st century Madisonians very quickly. So let's read. They, that's Jesus and his followers, went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were also amazed and they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So let me just point out the obvious. This story is about demon possession and exorcism. A few disturbing details. The demon talks. There is violent body shaking, and there is shrieking. This is kind of unusual. It feels like we left the Bible and entered into a Stephen King novel. Now, maybe we're thinking, maybe this story is kind of an exception. Maybe if we just keep on reading, we'll run into stories that are more inspiring, more uplifting, or at least less terrifying. So let's just keep on reading and see what happens, all right? 
As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. So that's a healing story. We like that. Jesus heals people. Awesome. Inspiring. Uh, That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and, huh, demon-possessed. Okay, more demon possession. Huh. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who have various diseases. Yay, healing. He also drove out many demons. Okay, more exorcism. Uh, But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So at least they don't talk this time. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed, teaching on prayer. Awesome. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. More exorcisms. Yikes. Lots of exorcisms in this passage. And in fact, if we just keep on reading the Gospel of Mark, this is what we see. Go to Mark chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Jesus appoints the 12 and gives them authority, quote, to drive out demons. Jesus teaches his followers to do exorcisms. Later on, chapter 3, Jesus gets into a huge debate debate with the religious leaders over his extraordinary ability to drive out demons. Because everybody's going, man, Jesus is really good at this. How does he do it? Chapter 5, big long passage where Jesus exorcises a man possessed by multiple demons. Chapter 7, Jesus exorcises the daughter of a Syrian Phoenician woman. Chapter 9, now this story is interesting. Jesus' disciples tries to do an exorcism. It doesn't work. Jesus goes and does it, and then he gives them tips and troubleshoots on how you do exorcisms properly. Okay. So what do we learn from all this? Well, the first thing. Jesus is a really good exorcist. Okay. I'm thinking before today, if somebody would ask you, name a few things that you think Jesus is really good at, a good exorcist probably wouldn't be on the list. Um, so here's the thing, okay? I, 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 this is what happens when we read the Gospel of Mark slowly. We learn interesting things. So I want us to sit with this a little bit, okay? Jesus is a really good exorcist. Now, many of us living in North America, we're having problems with this story. We're like, you know... Demon possession, exorcism, they're not normal parts of my life experience. I know that's not true for everybody. Some of you, uh, you have had experiences with the spiritual realm, and, and, and especially for those of you who have lived in other parts of our world. But for many of us who spend most of our lives in America, this is way out there. Like, this is not normal. And we have problems reading these kinds of passages, and, and we have all kinds of questions. Questions like, do demons really exist? Can they really possess people? And if you're new around here, uh, where do you do exorcisms at Blackhawk? Answer room 205B next to the family room. I'm totally kidding, okay? People in the family room, totally kidding. Uh, But the thing is, we have questions. The problem, Mark does not answer our 21st century questions because the Bible is not written to us 
but for us. The Gospel of Mark was written to first century Christ followers, and they don't have the same questions that we have. So here's how I want to tackle this today. I don't want to spend our time talking about our questions because this is a series on reading Mark. So I'm going to ask all of us to put our questions to the side for a bit and focus on this. What is Mark trying to teach his readers about Jesus and the kingdom through this story? How would a first century reader understand this story? And once we get that, then we'll spend a little time to talk about how we read the story as 21st century readers. Okay? All right. So this is, what, this is Mark's perspective. Okay, from Mark's perspective, we're asking the wrong questions. We're, we're asking questions like, do demons exist? And Mark would be like, duh, what a silly question. Of course they exist. The question you should be asking is, why is this story at the beginning of the book? I think about it. This story, this is really the first time in the whole book where Jesus actually does something in public in front of a large number of people. This is his public debut. Why exorcism? Now, we've been talking about this for a while now. We've been saying that the kingdom that Jesus announces is unexpected. It's time for us to get some clarity on that. Because Jews in the first century, they were expecting things all right. They were expecting a Messiah. They were expecting a king. They were expecting the coming of the kingdom of God. And yet, in the story we just read, the people, they saw what Jesus did, and their reaction, they were baffled. Verse 27, the people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching? And with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. Now you notice, right, the people rightly see that Jesus is a man of authority, that he has authority in the spiritual realm. But you also see that, they, that their, their reaction is not, wow, this is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. This is our guy. We finally found him. No, 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 that's not what happens. Rather, the reaction is more like, whoa, this is amazing. What is this? I mean, it's awesome, but it's not what they expected because they don't have a category for Jesus. And that's because what Jesus does doesn't fit into the package of things that a Messiah should be doing. If you want to be a Messiah, there are certain things you need to do. Just like if you want to run for president, there are certain things you need to do. There is a playbook for aspiring Messiahs. Because Jesus was not the first nor the last Jew to have messianic pretensions in the first century. So what is in this playbook? What is the accepted, what expected behavior of a Messiah? Well, for you, let's say you, you are in a first century aspiring Messiah. What do you need? Well, the first thing you need is you need a team. You need a team of smart people with influence and power and money who are loyal to you. So you need to begin with, if you don't already have them, you need to have quiet one-on-one -on -one conversations with people. You need to persuade them that you are a winner, that their investment in you will be rewarded when you come to power. Number two, you need to get the religious leaders on your side, people like the Pharisees. You need to care about what they care about. You need to follow their rules so that they will put their stamp of approval on you so that the people will think that God has chosen you. And then 
you need to get your hands dirty. Stage a raid on a Roman outpost, assassinate a Roman official, maybe kill some Jewish collaborators, right? Those hated Jews who collect taxes for the Romans. That'll get the people excited, right? The people think, wow, things are getting real. And young men will flock to your army. And then you just gotta wait. You wait for the Romans to do something stupid, but don't worry, they always do. The Romans will do something stupid, they get all the populace all riled up and angry, and that's when you march on Jerusalem. That's the playbook for a first century Messiah. How is Jesus doing so far? Not good. He is not off to a good start. Number one, wrong location. He is hanging out in Galilee. Galilee is boondocks. It's nowheresville. It's far from Jerusalem, far from the centers of power. Number two, wrong people. He recruits fishermen. Why would you do that? They're useless. They're not educated, no power, no money, no influence. I suppose the army could use some seafood? Number three, Jesus blows his public debut by driving out demons, causing confusion. I mean, it's cool and all, but why do it? Casting out demons is not part of the playbook, right? What does exorcism accomplish? What does casting out demons have to do with the coming of the kingdom of God? As it turns out, everything. You see, this passage is where Jesus begins to redefine the kingdom of God. This is where Jesus says, you know what, people? The kingdom is not what you expected. First century Jews, when they read the Old Testament, our Old Testament, when they read their Bible, what they read is a story that ends with them, the people of God, in exile under the oppression, the domination of the Roman Empire. And what they need is salvation. What they need is deliverance from this foreign power. What they want is a messiah, a military leader who would defeat the Romans. When Jesus reads the Old Testament, what he reads is a story about all humanity in exile under the domination of an evil spiritual force, satanic demonic force. And all humanity needs salvation and deliverance from the spiritual oppression. And what they need is a messiah, a king would defeat the demonic forces. In other words, Jesus has a fundamentally different assessment of what is the problem and what is the solution. And his assessment gets us into the biblical understanding of the spiritual realm. And for us to get Jesus, we need, a, we need to know something about what the Bible says about the spiritual realm. So here's a quick summary. The spiritual realm according to the Bible. The Bible teaches that persons are the most important things in the universe. Persons. Not physical things. All right, the physical world is a stage on which the, the drama between persons play out. Okay. Now, you notice I said persons. I didn't say humans. Okay? Just here's the definition. A person is an entity that has intelligence, thoughts, intentions, actions, some degree of self-determination, and can form relationships with other persons. And there are two types of persons. A human is a person with a physical body. A spirit is a person without a physical body. Two types of persons. Second, there is a spirit that is unlike any other spirit. This spirit 
is all-powerful. He is characterized by love and justice. He calls himself Yahweh. We call him God. He is the one that creates all the other spirits. And then he invites them to serve him and to enter into a community of love where all of them can work together to build a harmonious universe. And these other created spirits, some of them enter into this relationship with Yahweh. They're called angels or cherubs or, or whatever other names. Their names are decided by their function. But some of the spirits rebel. They reject the offer. And they're called demons. And they band together, and their leader is called Satan or the devil. In other words, the spiritual realm, the world of persons without bodies, is in conflict. Number three. Yahweh then creates the physical world, and he places on the physical world, in the physical world, the second type of persons, persons with bodies, human beings. And he offers us the same choice, to serve him and enter into a community of love or to reject him. And the humans, they reject Yahweh. They rebel against him. And in, in, in doing so, without them knowing it, they come under the domination of Satan and the demons. And because God gave the world for the humans to rule, the world now becomes part of the satanic realm. The Bible says the world is under satanic rule. The world is under satanic rule. Revelation 12. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. First John 5. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. You know, there's a common misconception that Satan and demons live in hell. Actually, no. They, they live on earth. They run earth. The world is under satanic rule. This idea was common sense among Christ followers in the first century. It was known, it was accepted, and if you were to ask them, hey, why do you believe this? They would likely point you to three things. Okay? Number one, they would say, hey, look around. Violence, warfare, hatred, anger, injustice, suffering on a massive scale. Does this world look like it's being run by God? Yeah, we know, we know. Uh, individuals make bad choices and they do evil, but the demons, they pull the strings from behind the scenes through individuals and through institutions. And by the way, just think about our world. I mean, are we really that different from the first century world? I mean, I know we live in a really nice part of the world right now. It's, with no doubt about it, it's a really nice part. But if we open our eyes to see what's going on out there, Violence, warfare, hatred, anger, injustice, suffering on a massive scale. Does this world look like it's being run by God? The second thing the Christ followers in the first century would point to, they would point to death. People die. Because we're human beings, we can't function without our bodies, and our bodies get sick. They break down, they fall apart, and we lose people. We lose people we love. And then we come to the realization that, that these relationships that we have that are so dear to us, there's no permanence to them. They are completely fleeting. 
Every human relationship ends in tragedy, in loss, in separation. The Christ followers in the first century would say, that's a sign. That points to we being dominated by these demons. We're stuck in a world where our bodies fall apart and we're destined for nothingness. Number three, they would point to demon possessions. In their world, demon possessions are a more common phenomenon than today. Um, yet, these demons, you know, beyond causing chaos and evil, beyond corrupting our human bodies, they sometimes, a demon would just go the final step and take direct control of a human's body. And that human's freedom is completely lost. And so demon possession becomes the ultimate symbol of the power of the demonic force, their subjugation of earth and their domination of humanity. So with all that in mind, let's go back to verses 23 through 26. We notice a few details. Uh, the impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us? Uh, this, this, this phrase actually translates an idiom. The Greek says, tihemin kaisoi, which is literally, what to us and to you? Right? So this is actually a translation of a Hebrew idiom. We see it a few times in the Old Testament. And this is what the idiom communicates. It says, we are not aligned. We are not in agreement. We are on opposite sides. So by this idiom, the impure spirit is drawing a line in the sand. Okay, this is where I'm kind of messed up, because when I read this, the first place my mind goes to is West Side Story. You guys know, right? You have the sharks, you have the jets, you know, the, the, the gangs who sing and dance, you know, when you're a jet, you're a jet all the way, right? You have stuff like that. So you have, you have the sharks territory, and you have the jets territory. And if a shark goes across the jet's territory, that's a provocation, right? The things are going to go down. They're, 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 you're going to have a rumble, most likely. All right, so yes, I know I messed up. Okay, just judge me. Go ahead. Uh, but the demons have their territory. The earth is their territory, okay? Every human being they see belongs to their realm. And then one day, somebody doesn't belong shows up. And they recognize, and they go, hey, this is Jesus. What is he doing here? This is a provocation. So when the impure spirit yells, what he's saying is, hey, you don't belong here. You're in the wrong part of town. You're trespassing. And so what's the obvious next thing? Well, the next thing is a challenge, right? Why are you here? Have you come to destroy us? Are you about to start something? Are we throwing down? Are we going to rumble? And another detail that pops out from this passage is that this, this demon is really fixated, really fixated on naming Jesus. Right, if you notice, he, calls, he, he says, Jesus of Nazareth, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Right? Why is he doing that? Why is he naming Jesus? The same thing happens in, in, in Mark chapter 5, another exorcism. Right? And this is time, this, this demon, he's shouting at the top of his voice. I'm not going to do that, okay? What do you want with me? Same phrase, uh, okay, same phrase. And then Jesus, son of the most high God, right? So Jesus of Nazareth, holy one of God, son of the most high God. Why are they throwing out names of Jesus left and right? 
Well, this is where we need to learn a bit about first century exorcism protocol. I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> In the ancient world, it is commonly understood that if you know the name of a demon, you, the exorcist, can use the name to control, to influence the demon and be protected from that demon. Many Bible scholars believe that that practice can be reversed. That is to say, a demon, if he knows the name of the exorcist, can, can use the name of the exorcist to resist and fight the exorcism. So when this impure spirit is yelling out the name of Jesus, that's really akin to shields up in Star Trek or lock and load in action movies, right? Or let's get ready to rumble in a boxing ring. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the demon drawing his sword, adopting fighting stance, right? And he's using his weapon. I know who you are. What we're seeing is a description of spiritual combat. And then in verse 25, Jesus says, shut up and get out. <laughs> now, having talked about all of this, I think we come to realize that it's actually difficult to overstate the significance of what's happening here in verse 25. This verse 25, that's the first shot. That's the shot heard not only around the world, but echoes through the entire spiritual realm. With that, heaven has invaded earth. With that, the kingdom of God has declared war on the kingdom of Satan. So what's going on here is this. Jesus is redefining the kingdom of God. The first century Jews, they think the enemy are the Romans. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. The enemies are not the Romans. Right? The enemies are these spiritual forces, these, these demons that, that, that control you. They're not human beings. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not against persons with bodies, not humans, not people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The struggle of the kingdom is not against humans but against the demonic forces that rule our world. Second, the king has declared war. Jesus is the one-man invasion force. Think Rambo. King Jesus is dropped behind enemy lines, and he's taking on the demonic forces single-handedly. Jesus actually brags about this in Mark chapter 3. He's like, he compares himself to a home invader. He's like, oh yeah, and I've, Satan's the, the homeowner. I've tied him up. I'm going to rob him blind. Oh yeah, kingdom of God, baby. Those of you who, who have this idea coming in here, coming into that, Jesus is this gentle, meek guy that people walk over, check that at the door. Jesus is a man on a mission, and he has declared war. And that means exorcism is not incidental to the kingdom of God, it's core activity. The coming of the kingdom means the purging of the demonic realm from our world. So that's what first century readers would have gotten from that story. What do we do with it as 21st century readers? Um, 
When we start to talk about the spiritual realm, it's pretty common among Christ followers to have two different types of reactions that are unhelpful. Okay? The first reaction that's unhelpful is that we tend to not believe in the existence of Satan and demons. And this is actually very common. Um, but the Barna Group did a survey about 10 years ago. They're surveying Christ followers, people who believe in God and who believe in Jesus. And it turns out only 35%, 35% believe in the existence of Satan. Hmm. Now, we don't know exactly why that is, but Barna Group made some suggestions. And one of the suggestions is that um, it could be related to the fact that in our culture, we use stories of demons as entertainment. In 2014 alone, there were 11 movies released in America that talk about demon possession and exorcism. Now, that was a high, a high watermark, but the trend has continued. If you Google movies about demon possession and exorcism, you will find a glut of options. Movie, TV, video, direct. You will find tons of these. Now, some of us might think, well, this shows our culture's openness to the spiritual realm. But at the same time, this is the kind of thing that reinforces a rigid compartmentalization. Satan and demons are relegated to the realm of movies. Satan and demons are relegated to the realm of entertainment. Satan and demons are relegated to categories of things we don't have to take seriously. They're fun, good for a scare, so they can't be real. So I'm just going to talk to the Christ followers for a bit those of us who struggle, those who have doubts about Satan and demons. And I just want to ask you a few questions to get our thinking started, right? So, so question number one, if we believe in Yahweh, the God who created human beings, why would it be so hard to believe that Yahweh created other spirits as well? What's the rational objection there? And if we believe that Yahweh offers us humans the choice to, to obey him and follow him or to reject him, why is it so difficult to believe that Yahweh would offer the same choice to these other spirits that he's created? And finally, if we humans, by rejecting God, can mess up our world, what would be the consequences of the rebellion of a whole bunch of spiritual beings? The Bible takes the conflict in the spiritual realm seriously. If you want to learn more, we did a seven-part series called The Invisible Realm last year. I recommend going to our website and, and, and watching those and learn more. So that's the first reaction, not believing in, in Satan and demons. Uh, the second reaction that's not helpful is to, well, to see demons everywhere. <laughs> you, know, you know the cliche, oh, the devil made me do it, right? Like we blame everything on demons. And, uh, and, 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 there, and, you know, we humans are perfectly able of messing up the world without the help of demons. <laughs> but, the, but more importantly, what we're looking for is the right balance, the biblical balance. Because, you see, while the Bible says, yeah, there is a spiritual realm, the main story of the Bible is focused on God reaching humans and humans responding and acting. The main storyline of the Bible is, is God and humanity. Yes, Satan and demons exist, but no, they're not the center. So to find the proper balance, we need to not go overboard. We need, to not, we, need, we need to not develop an unhealthy, excessive interest in Satan and demons. We need to not see demons everywhere because the, the Bible doesn't see demons 
everywhere. So, to not believe in their existence or to see them everywhere, two extremes that we want to avoid. So how should we respond to the story? Well, as it turns out, we respond to it the same way the first century readers respond to Mark. Number one, our struggle is not against people. The kingdom is not against other people. Throughout our history of the church, there will be times, and there probably are times right now, where it feels like we're under siege. We feel like we have people who, who are against us, people who, who believe in other gods, or they, or they don't believe in God, or they have different values, and, and it just feels like there are our enemies. And we can develop that us-versus-them mentality. And we'll end up saying things like, well, God is against them. And Jesus says, uh, no, I died for them. I came on earth to save them. Number two, the kingdom has arrived in power. Mark puts that story right at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark to tell us the kingdom has arrived in power. Well, and it was simple. It was simple as shut up and get out. Now, we know that's the first skirmish. That's the first battle. It turns out saving the world from satanic domination takes a bit more than that. In fact, it takes quite a bit more. As we follow the story along, we get to the climax of the story, and we get to Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. And by the cross, the walls that imprisons us under spiritual domination comes crumbling down. By the cross, we become reconciled to Yahweh. We get to know and become friends with this God who created us, who knows us, who loves us, and has sacrificed his son for us. By the cross, we gain the freedom to love, to forgive, and to begin to restore justice and peace in our world. And by the cross, the back of the spiritual power is broken because he comes back from the dead. By Jesus' resurrection, death dies so that our relationships do not end in tragedy and we are not destined for nothingness. Christ has triumphed, and we have confidence in the victory of the kingdom of God. Let me pray for us. Father, you have triumphed. You have triumphed through your son, Jesus, who has come and has defeated the forces of darkness. Father, help us to know that. Help us to live knowing that. Help us to live experiencing that in our lives, that these forces do not control us. These forces do not oppress us. And we are free to follow you and to love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.